This is Coda Radio, episode 242 for February 2nd, 2017. everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode's brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Scale Your Code. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. My name is Chris, and join us every single week like a Time Lord in something that's kind of like a phone booth. Why, yes, it's Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike. Misa traveling through time! <laughs> No, you see, I had all the EQ set for Jar- or for Mike, and then Jar Jar takes the mic. I thought we finally put a bullet in that guy. Damn it! You're not gonna die, you little punk bitch! Oh, Jar Jar. <laughs> get that guy out of here! Oh, Jeez, Yo, Jar Jar is very excited about Donald Trump. That's all I want to say. Yeah, I bet he is. I bet he is. You know, wow! As we record the show right now, Bitcoin just uh, is almost oof. It's just nine hundred ninety nine dollars. It's like it's teasing me. So. Quick apologies to all of, all of you who are wondering where we were earlier in the week, wondering where we were. Uh, Mr. Dominic and I had to punt. Is that the right vernac for the show? We had to punt because there was a crazy business thing that came up for Mike, and uh, we just decided, all right, we will make up later in the week. So here we are on a Thursday doing the Coda Radio program. So we might be a little out of sorts. I don't normally talk to you on Thursdays. I thought I didn't even know you t- existed outside of Mondays, so. It's really weird, yeah. <laughs> you know how we're going to center ourselves? You know how we get centered? Is we start with a little feedback. You see you see what I do there? We bring it home, Mike. We center ourselves. Uh, and our first feedback this week comes in from, I guess he's just labeled as hobbyist. He says, I'm, uh, first, my question is, how do you guys feel about hobbyist programmers? People who learn how to program a hobby only and don't bother pursuing a career in it. And my second question, maybe it was answered before, what OS browser and notable plugins and email providers and VPN providers do you all use? Wow, just a few questions there. So uh, where do you start? Let's see, with hobbyists. What do you think, Mike, about those lazy sons of bitches who only dabble in programming because it amuses them? Well, I think we need to build the wall. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and I think Radio Shack's going to pay for it. I'm kind of confused why he thinks this would be a problem to begin with. Yeah, I don't. I don't see how this could possibly be a problem. It's a you know anything. Yeah, apps. Anything. I, actually, I I would say I would I respect the hell out of somebody who just develops software because they enjoy it and not because it's how they make money. Because it's it's that's that's pretty interesting. I think that's a very intellectual thing to do. It's I think it's very respectable. I don't think there's any shame in that at all. And plus, yeah. it's just a great way to better understand how computers work. And if you, even if you just derive that from it, it's worth it. And I think you have a potential to actually develop more interesting software uh, because you don't have commercial pressures or pressures of like, you know, professional standards or, you know, things like that. Q&A. Q&A. <laughs> uh, what do you mean I can't just like, you know, use all the memory I want? Of course yeah. you can. It means, you're, memory. it means, yeah, you're going to be limited in your reach, but it also means that you basically just get to enjoy all the great stuff and don't have to deal with all yeah. the grindy stuff. You get to cowboy co- code all the time. Cowboy code. The- Somebody bang suggest Yeehaw! that right now. You know, the, the live chat room is our source for titles. If you ever looked at a title of Coda Radio and been like, where did they get that from? You blame our chat room. And you can also be part of that train wreck over jblive.tv. We generally do Coda Radio on Mondays, but you can always find out at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and uh, you could bang suggest Cowboy Coder. Uh, all right, are you ready for uh, number two? Oh, no, he had lots more questions. Jeez, that's right. Uh, so, uh, what OS and browser? Do you want to start there, Mike? Let's do it. Well, I, I guess, I don't know for you, but for me, it's all of them for both ends, for both questions. Yeah, um... Yeah, Primarily so. Linux, predominantly Linux by by a large majority, but all of them. I'm talking to you on a Windows box right now. It's the only thing I use it for is talking to people on Skype. I hate it, but I have an old Windows Seven installed. That actually, it's a new Windows. It's a newish Windows Seven installed. That's not just sort of untouched. That runs with Skype. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I switch between Linux and Mac all the time, but and I'm using Windows on a project right now, and it's. Uh, 
It's an experience. But I mean, in terms of, you know, it's a mess. Question, I, yeah, it's it's um, are you familiar with dumpster fires? Yeah, exactly. It's a dumpster fire. It really. I, and, you know, we don't need to we don't need to bash on Windows. It's just out of all of them I use. It definitely has the most legacy feeling. It's deeply unstable. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, if you have a Windows machine, though, that's fine, right? It's not. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like you need to push anybody in any particular direction for a hobbyist. Yeah. Maybe so, I'm browser, yeah, like, also all of them, uh, primarily oh. Chrome. Uh, that's my that's predominant, but all of them. Oh, Chris. I mean, I'm in Chrome right now because I'm on the Mac because I was doing some Mac-y things before we got on the call. But Chris, join me. Be a real freedom man. Oh, yeah, that's Take right. Take the Firefox challenge. How has the – I've done it before, you know, and I, I had to bail. It's been terrible. It really likes to spin up that CPU. Oh, really? So you how are you? You're almost a week into it, aren't you? Yeah, it's uh, so. The issue, yeah. One, I just want to say, the trend of like developers just testing in Chrome and thinking that's okay is really really bad. Don't do that. You should have like Firefox and Safari or whatever installed in your system, but Firefox is just not awesome at a lot of things right now and I actually think uh, Walt Marsberg over at Recode wrote a great piece about like what happened to it because they devoted resources to Persona which I still think it was a great idea we featured it on the show actually and uh, Firefox OS but which I still think was a stupid idea it um it's it feels you, you said Windows feels legacy Firefox feels very legacy it feels very old now having said that the reason I took the challenge was because the um, the this is going to get a little deep into the Linuxy weeds. I don't want to talk about it too much today, but Chrome was causing an issue on my Ubuntu install in my Lemur where the screen would flicker. Oh man! Extended use, and after extended uh, research and talking to people on Twitter and in forums, it is just a problem with the proprietary version of Chrome. So I would have to switch to Chromium, which is like the worst of all worlds, in my opinion. Why? I, I, I've never had any luck with Chromium. It's the only thing you really miss out on is you have to come up with a, a solution for Flash if you want Flash, I think. And uh, you miss out on Netflix. Yes, yeah, I use Flash all the time because I watch a bunch of YouTube videos. I, I think Pepper one. Flash, I can't remember. There's a real simple solution to it. I also use Chrome myself. Um, and, and Firefox is... Uh, is in my estimation just it is not as good at handling my particular workload with like sometimes tabs that are more like applications than they are web pages and having a few of them going and and maybe leaving them open for like 24 hours and then the other thing is that I have a couple of extensions I use for show prep which are extremely useful yeah and I simply just don't have they're not available for Firefox yeah I have a lot of like Chrome extensions that I use pretty heavily and that that's been kind of the biggest thing I've been missing in Firefox having said that though for day-to-day browsing on the lemur I'm still using Firefox um, but like once I have to open a video have it, you have you taken any like have you gotten any sense of battery usage difference between Chrome and Firefox on the laptop you know I'm so I, this week I'm gonna be traveling but I'm so rarely actually on battery power mm-hmm. okay yeah uh, it, yeah. It, it, okay, so then he asked about email providers. Um, I think I'm using for JB. I'm using Google Apps. Yeah, I'm using Google, whatever they call it. it used to is it still apps? I thought they called it like work or something. Yeah, and VPN providers. Uh, this is my favorite. Is Air VPN. I really like AirVPN. And I just hack into the JB servers and use there. So yeah, I found. Uh, I have. I've talked about it before on previous shows. AirVPN's great. And if you want, I think you can also pay in Bitcoin. Um, <clears throat> if you want to be like totes anonymous, I guess just tumble it first. Uh, so the here's what I realized hearing back our our answers, Mike, is we sound super boring. Right, we're super conservative. We don't have like anything like what what is the name of the browser that's like the hot darling? The Vivaldi. Oh, the Vivaldi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we are like we suck in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know. You know what? I, I don't even use a VPN. I, I do have a VPN provider. I just don't know because i only use it like twice a year i mean i change it up on like what operating system like or what distro like i get kind of spicy there sometimes but i'll tell you what it really is is narrowing it down so for example when i mentioned uh, this is this is probably the perfect example because it comes up on a weekly basis too uh so i might as well mention it again because if there's any one thing i hear about 
I've probably heard about this. I can't even – maybe it's in the millions how many times I've, I've heard this. Hey, Chris, have you heard about X to replace Skype? Insert your favorite thing. Yeah, they're all uh, crap. Yeah, today it's wire. Um, but usually it's something else. And uh, when I say I'm running Skype on Windows 7, I generally get this, but you could be using X. Why don't you just use X? Now, the real reason is I have a job to do, and I have to do that job on a reliable, performant basis. And if I add time or issues or delay, that adds cost, complexity. But on top of that, I need to work with the broader world. It's not just me and my couple of close buddies. I need to be able to call up a guest or bring on a new host. And the reality is when it comes to VoIP communication over the Internet, Skype has a huge dominance. And so I need to be able to interact at the best quality level possible with what everybody else is using because I'm not I'm not playing around. I'm not just like I'm not just like on my computer. I'm like, okay, today I'm going to use wire. No, I have to work with the entire world out there. And so that yeah. means I have to pick a very practical tool within those limitations, i.e., the best version of Skype is the version that runs on Windows, especially if you want what? 1080p remote video. Now, if I'm going to run Windows, I want it to be the most practical, straightforward, least hassle experience with the least overhead. And so I just chose Windows 7 Ultimate, put it on there. Which makes a ton of sense. I mean, if you if my Windows installs a Windows 10, and I'm not super happy about that, but I had to. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to kind of expand on his question. But it's getting work done, Mike. It's about getting work done. Well, it's about getting work done. I mean, there's a few tools that I've recently started using um, that I've actually found platform differences on that are a huge pain in the ass. Oh, really? So I don't – well, you know I've been doing these YouTube videos. Yeah. Um. And I'm using Open Broadcast, uh, Open Broadcaster Studio. You know, they like it. They, I think they like it when you call it OBS. But uh, yeah, yeah, Open Broadcaster on Linux, right? On Linux and Mac, oh, okay. unfortunately. Okay. And this is because people always email and has how's the lemur. This is probably the one most painful part of the lemur right now. Is for some reason the video and audio keep desyncing in the middle on the lemur using the same software with the same settings hmm. on mac it works right out of the box on the mac the old macbook hmm. provided it doesn't like what's the audio device just the webcam just the webcam yeah that's particularly weird if the audio and the video are the, being captured by the same device that's very unusual yeah so it's it's really now i am not as chris knows from my inability to like not have echoes when i do the show a audio video guy but that is a tool that I would be looking for a more aggressive replacement for on Linux, particularly sure. because the reality is like these videos are five to ten minutes long, and I just don't care to like sample the audio and, go <laughs> yeah, and yeah. change that and make it a fifteen twenty minute editing process for a five minute right. video minimum. Well, and I do them live, right? I'm using YouTube's live feature, ah, and then it just yeah. converts them. Yeah, uh, that is something where I might try a new tool. Yep. But having said that, if it just works. I see no reason to be adventurous at all. Well, I I still like to kind of uh, sort of look ahead and sort of plan for my current tool that I'm using to go away and like always kind of like if it's an important tool, what would I jump to, right? So that's how we ended up investing more in OBS was because I knew I'm going to eventually jump away from Wirecast. And with Skype, right. uh, when, when I do the Linux Action Show, Noah and I exclusively use Jitsi Meet. And we are figuring out all of the, the little issues that Jitsi Meet has now in the Linux Action Show. And one day, when Skype is either completely irrelevant or whatever, we all have Jitsi to move to. And so I'll eventually have a new tool. But right, for the meantime, the daily driver is the one that when I make a video call to somebody else in the world, I get a 1080p 16 by 9 picture if they're, if they're connection and camera supported. So that's the one I use now. But Jitsi's getting really close. And if I was maybe starting with a small handful of people and I could control what tools they used, I might be able to get them to use the tool I want. But there's that. that is, so, so just consider that, Mr. Hobbyist, when, uh, when you yeah. think about tools. Don't, don't, don't obsess over tools. Don't beat yourself up over it. I mean, we, yeah, the standards are standards for a reason, but we should move on. All right. So our next feedback comes in. This is, first of all, I really love the show and I've been a listener since episode one. Damn. I sense pain coming. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> but you got – no, I'm kidding. Uh, I have a response to JavaScript replacements being irrelevant with ES6 standards. It, uh, that is not true. Have you heard of ES7? Uh, in the years to come, there will likely be 8 and 9. Why do we uh, – why 
Why do we have Babel and a wide range of different languages that, trans, that transpile, transpile to JavaScript? Uh, different browser vendors can't probably and never will keep up with the different standards, hello fragmentation, and this reason alone will guarantee these languages and transpilers to stay relevant. As for TypeScript, it is advertised as a superset of JavaScript with types, and it really is just that. You have an optionally stat- uh, statically typed JavaScript language, and the fact that you have static typing is good enough reason to use it. He says uh, Ruby is even considering adding it. If you have 300 lines of code, then it probably doesn't really matter to you. But if maybe you're working on a massive project, like 100,000 lines of code or more, uh, maybe some of it you didn't write or you wrote a long time ago, good luck changing that without breaking it. And to make things more fun, you find the error only during runtime and in some rare cases, even when you test your code. Static typing can greatly help you with that as it can point out problems at the compile-transpile time, reducing time of catching and resolving those bugs. And also, static typing is much cleaner, uh, clearer I'm sorry, as what programmers' intent was in the first place. Now, to be fair, introducing a new language does bring overhead, and all the JS transpilers have are still JavaScript in the end. So you need to know both technologies under the hood. That's a great point. Uh, but yeah, that, that's one of my main points against it. Yeah, going. Yeah, but to yeah, but to be also fair, if you're writing pure JavaScript, chances that you are using Babel are probably fifty percent because of that new feature that you need. So in the end, you still have overhead. Uh, and TypeScript or whatever you prefer and end up using. That's my two cents, guys. Keep up the good work and send all the hate to Alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com. <laughs> Alan resigned. <laughs> no, he's still doing BSD now. He's still, he's still got the email address. Okay, the problem with sending hate mail to the BSD guys is it will they will have a committee <laughs> for five years to discuss if they're even going to acknowledge your email. Yeah, right? Sorry. That's you very true. What? Yeah, we, I, I got to stop making fun of BSD because... So I like, I like Mr. TypeScript's uh, points here. I He's like got some points. I like that good points. he also acknowledges, look, though, at the end of the day, you're going to have to know TypeScript and JavaScript. You gotta, I mean, it's not like you can't just not learn JavaScript. Yes. Well, we got some popo over there. I heard that. I know they're coming for you. You hear Mike that? Is I, tried on to, the I, tried run. To, I tried to mute it. It was too damn slow. Selma and Mike over there. Oh. All right. So, yes, right? Greenfield... It would certainly be beneficial to have static typing, um, but to say that types. So I've I've a few challenges to you. One, how often do you get greenfield projects? Like that that's going to be my main thing. Of most projects you get are a bag of code already. Yeah, and I, you know, I still feel this way about iOS apps. Right, it is more challenging, although sometimes the right choice to integrate two languages into a project, it's often not a good idea, right? It just it just adds complexity. And it adds, like, if you're hiring a team, they now need to know this other language. And, you know, the writer makes a really good point of, holy crap, they really are coming from me. Yeah, man. They um, are. Makes a really good point Do you want me to of, kill time? I can kill time for a second while they go by. Let's okay, go that. ahead. All right, let's take a second here. We'll talk about DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code CODERDIGITAL. Once you sign up, you apply to your account and you get a $10 credit. Then you are cooking with propane and propane-related accessories. This is a really slick system because they have a beautiful user interface that allows you to spin up a system in under a minute. And they have data centers all over the world. With base pricing, start at $5 a month or consider doing the hourly pricing, especially if you're testing, experimenting, doing a little bit of dev work and just want a machine for a couple of hours or a couple of days, this is such a brilliant way because for three cents an hour, you can get two gigs of RAM on a two-core machine with three terabytes of transfer, uh, 20 gigabyte SSD, all of those different options, all the different machines are SSD. They have machines that range from 512 megabytes of RAM up to like the 220 gigabyte range of RAM. So you can really have some extreme performance systems. Combine that with the 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor with all SSDs everywhere and the KVM virtualizer, you're talking incredible performance. Now, like the network adapter can be para-virtualized under KVM. So it's the, the OS and the hypervisor both know what they're doing. They both know they're working with virtualized equipment. And so they don't have to do the overhead of emulating the entire network card. And so it's much, much faster. It's smoking fast. It's such an awesome infrastructure. And DigitalOcean made all of the right choices early on. Go over to DigitalOcean. Use the promo code CODERDIGITAL after you sign up 
Check out that intuitive control panel. Spin up rigs with one click or take advantage of their awesome documentation. They just put up a new one on the 27th, how to monitor Ubuntu 16.04 with Sysdig. And this isn't even necessarily DigitalOcean specific. So even if you're not a DigitalOcean customer yet, go read this. And then look at the care and thought that's put into this. Look at the way this tutorial is broken down, the way this whole thing is formatted, the way every single little command is properly formatted. So even if you have a little ADD, you can pull this stuff right out. They have professionals that are, that are full-time. DigitalOcean hired them to do this stuff to make sure it's all cleaned up and works and looks great. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code CODERDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Promo code CODERDIGITAL. All one word. So was there any – did you have closing thoughts on that? On that yeah, email? I had a few more points uh, now that I'm no longer being filmed by right. cops. Yeah. <laughs> so he, the writer's point about you have to know – JavaScript to be successful, like TypeScript or CoffeeScript or any of the other alternatives, is another huge thing against it in my book. Maybe I'm a crotchety old man, but I just don't understand when I have to hire for a team why I would add this layer of additional knowledge, right? Because um, it's it's not like you know Objective mm. C is a superset of C, um, and I, but I feel fundamentally that that, that superset was very different. Uh, than TypeScript's relationship to JavaScript in particular. Hmm. Like you will eventually end up in vanilla JavaScript, or worse, you'll inherit a project that already has a bunch of JavaScript and still need to, you know, still need to inter- interop with it, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the hiring Other aspect is, of it too is particularly right. a, a, a good point. Right, and the reality is, it seems like the biggest impact of TypeScript is actually influencing the ECMA standard, which is JavaScript, right? So ES6 has classes. You make a great point that ES7, 8, 9, 10, 11 will probably come out. They will probably all be more statically typed and more TypeScript-like. So I don't necessarily agree that you really need to use it Um, unless, again, you're going pure Greenfield and you can just make that choice and that is just you know yep. the platform you're working in. Yep, yep. But in, in in most cases, you're probably not greenfield. I would think. If you're going I mean, greenfield and you you know you got a, it's a long term project, it probably could make sense. Yeah, especially if it's going to be large and in charge. I mean, m- most JavaScript projects you know that come my way are bags of jQuery. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> bags of what? <laughs> jQuery. Like, oh, I yeah. thought you said something else. <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> hey, I know you're really fired up. It's changing everything. Uh, Android developers are really excited about instant apps, which are available for, uh, well, I think BuzzFeed, Periscope, and a couple other high-profile developers. Instant apps. Is this the uh, – is this like the uh, – this was one of the Google I.O. announcements that we just kind of forgot about, isn't it? Yeah, well, we covered it on uh, Google I, I remember it, this. It went into the Aether for a while. Yes. Uh, and uh, there was you know, one thing we speculated on how it might work. And I had this crazy theory about it working silently without developers updating the wraps and using the intent system on Android because it makes perfect sense in the, how that would work. I remember that. And that is just not true. Oh, Developers will have to modify their apps, which in the world of Android development means this is another feature that's not going to matter. Mm. Congratulations. Well done. That is, that is a thing, huh? You're right. Yes. If, they could have done, if they could have done this server side, it could, have, it could have mattered a lot more. I mean, I don't know how possible that was. Even yeah. in the, yeah. that show was weeks back, but yeah. it, it certainly was a, would have been a technical feat. But I – So if I recall, this was like uh, users just lightly interacting and they can sort of just pull down the, uh, the aspects of your app they need bit by bit on demand, right? Yes, that's, that's exactly so what, how, what it's supposed I'm to I'm going to try playing this video because they do a demo of it. We'll see how bad this is. Let's, let's see how this goes. Imagine you need a, an app for a parking meter. You don't want to install it. That's a hassle. You're never going to use it again. Right. But imagine there's an NFC thing here. You tap the NFC, and it instantly loads the entire app, complete with Android Pay, fully supported. You can just pay for your parking, go on your way, and you don't have an app cluttering up your drawer later. Okay, I do like that aspect of it because sometimes when I find myself traveling, I end up having to install like an app for the train, an app for the hotel, and it's, it is really annoying. Because then I just have then I then if nothing else I even just have them in my installed apps list <laughs> where I have to scroll through, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, see, it, but that's a pretty narrow niche, right? I don't, I I 
you know, doing enterprise development for for Android, I don't see a ton of companies implementing this unless you are that very narrow case of like a parking meter or exactly what they just demoed. Yeah, when when they announced this, I also had the, I had the, I had the sense that perhaps they were building this for another functionality later on. Like once they have the ability to slice the app up like this and bring it down on demand. Chromebooks. Yep, exactly. That's what I was thinking. This feels like it's, it's, it is a step on a long-term strategy, which there's also a rumor about, I don't know if you saw the uh, next series of Samsung Chromebooks are basically Android devices. Oh, I did not see that. Yes. But so this could – see, this could be interesting because all of a sudden you could have crazy, crazy, crazy possibilities, like especially if you could just do it in general Chrome. And so a website would maybe be able to do something much more sophisticated in an Android app than they could do in the web page. So all of a sudden their web page could just call this little uh, thing? Yeah, that seems really, really weak to me. So you, you – I'm almost wondering if these are going to become like web apps on demand that auto-assemble in the browser, like a a robot in disguise. That that seems silly, right? Because we're already seeing the trend of HTML5 and JavaScript technologies doing a lot of the heavy lifting for particularly enterprise internal corporate mobile development. Why would you decide to bring the Android SDK to your browser? The only thing I could think of that maybe would be it's something you just – can't do correctly in the browser like perhaps it's android pay android pay maybe maybe it's something that's them them releasing an sdk there's an apple pay sdk for the browser yeah yeah i agree i'm just saying maybe there's something or maybe it's something to do with interacting with a sensor a hardware sensor in the phone directly i don't know i I mean i i think you're i think you're I mean, I hope you're right. That would be interesting. I think it would be. I don't. I think you're. Pro, I think you're probably more. Your practical look is probably. Right. It, but I just does feel like they're doing. It's not just about instant apps on Android. It feels like this is going to go somewhere bigger. Honestly, this feels very weird to me. I. I love Java. I'm so happy Android's Java, but I am betting the farm, and I'm super convinced that all this stuff is going to be web based. And it may, even though they're not there yet, are these progressive web apps that are kind of like they degrade themselves based on the user experience, device, and bandwidth, blah, 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 blah. Go Google it. Um, in fact, there's a Google framework whose name I can't remember that begins with a P. Oh, that just is exactly for this where, you know, if, if I want my users not to install an app, instead of doing Android instant apps, wouldn't I just do a progressive web app and, you know, the Chrome browser on Android can trigger that same thing, right? Because it can just send a signal, yeah. an encoded URL, same on iOS for like a QR code or whatever. Yeah. That seems to be where we're going. Now, there's still cases where companies will want to package their apps as apps and like put them through the app store. But I I think this is a little anachronistic, a little backwards looking, hmm. unless it's a stepping stone to finally fixing Android tablets and making Chromebooks, you know, more of a consumer play right now i i like the, the question i'm seeing chris is less native v hybrid and more do i even need to have this be an actual app or can we just do it as a progressive web app because no one wants to do like mobile device management it's a huge pain in the ass mainly because of apple right because you have to all the signing nonsense um but we're not we're we are not to be clear we are not there today Right. That is not the world we live in. In a lot of cases, it is still the best bang for your buck to do like an Ionic or React mobile hybrid app and actually have to deal with the mobile device management side of it in the enterprise. But I'm telling you, the you know, the winds are blowing because IT managers are cheap, Chris. I don't know if you know this. (laughs) There's nothing there's nothing cheaper than like not having to manage a bunch of let me take it back. Do you know what's cheaper than managing a thousand iPhones? Not having, having iPhones. Happy, well, yeah, but they have the CEO needs a shiny iPhone, Chris. I mean, oh, certainly, yeah. Um, not having it be an actual app and having it be a progressive web oh, app sure. where there's just right, and then when you when you pave every iPhone and you issue it to the whoever needs it, you just put the home screen uh, the home screen icon on for them. Yep, yep. And that's it. Simple, the, simple, and there's no reason to pay for an MVO system. You're not there yet. We're getting there, and there are some advantages to still having like an Ionic packaged app. But this seems, you know, the idea that we're going to take the native Android SDK and somehow slice up your apps and shove it in, in and like put it in the browser seems 
I mean, maybe you're right, but it, I, I know you're doing a ton of pot. I, I'm, I'm just worried. <laughs> you think I've had like some sort of uh, pot-induced uh, uh, hallucination of Chrome from the future? I don't think, I think it, Sindar <laughs> Pichai showed up with a Chromebook. You know why it doesn't seem that crazy to me? Um, it seems like uh, that we already can kind of do this with entire Android apps in Chrome today. There's a couple of different... Uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't. Yeah, uh, I I wonder if it's really just maybe it, maybe we'll just honestly, Mike. If it was just when I go up to use a payment terminal, or I'm at the hotel, or I'm on the train, if it was just then, it simply loads the app, lets me boop, 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 punch in what I need to do, take care of my business, and it doesn't end up on my installed list. It doesn't end up with an icon on my launcher. That's that's good enough for me. I hope it. That's hope. That's good. Let's have that take off. I would like that. Okay, let's let's take that further. Why does it have to be like an app app? Why can't you know Apple and Google just write a special? Well, I can tell you why from Google's perspective. I don't know why from like the hotel's perspective, but from Google's perspective, now they have another reason for you to really only invest in the Android app. You don't need to bother with that. We'll just generate generate it for you on demand. And look, everybody's coming there with mobile anyways. Now, of course, this doesn't accommodate the iOS users, so it's not really going to work. But I that's can see a that policy decision. I can see that, that being Google's incentive, though. The incentive here is, well, if somebody's trying to make a choice between developing a web app and an Android app, or just a web app and just an Android app, well, maybe we can solve this problem for them. Now this hotel can put all of their effort into a really nice, well-done Android app, and they don't have to build a little internal web page for managing the lights in your room. Uh, I mean, right now, I agree with you, right? In in the present case, I agree that it is more beneficial for most of them to have the dedicated app. But I just, I really don't see it in, let's say, as early as a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I, th- I think it's a pretty, now, you know, I, I, I let me just finish this. I thought, you know, two years ago, I thought it was going to be five years until hybrid became the majority of what I was seeing uh, being requested. Uh. It happened in 12 months. And then, and, and we're so far above the 50% mark now that native is like a weird side thing that we kind of still do because we can, right? It just, it, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, if, I mean, you're an IT admin guy, right? Look at it from the perspective of you're contracting out to some development shop. Do you really want to manage two, two development teams? Do you really want to have to manage all these devices and code signing if they're Apple devices? Which That's is just the, go. This is the yeah. co- this is the core problem, especially if it's for a services industry where you have customers right. and you don't have uh, their their device isn't managed by your corporation. This being Android only is why you're still going to have you still have to create the web app because you're going to have fifty percent of your customers show up or whatever it is sixty. I don't know. Depends probably on the establishment, but probably an establishment that's doing something like this is probably serving a higher-end customer. So you could have a decent percentage of your customers that are showing up with, you know, 128 gigabyte iPhone 7 Pluses in their hands, um, sure. and they're not going to be able to load an Android app. So they're going to have to use either they're then going to have to either create an iOS app or just split the difference and make a, the web app for everybody. So I agree with you. I right. I don't. I'm not saying it's going to be and, a successful strategy. I'm just saying I think that's their motivation. Right. And right now, the way they're solving that problem is they're doing a Xamarin or like an Ionic app. Right. Yeah. But that's still a ton of overhead for them of having to be in the app store and do all that. And we, we need to get off of this because we're, you know, I, if we want to have an episode about progressive web apps, I would love to do that. It, it is a very simple concept that's actually, it's really early days. Like some things just don't work super well. But so yeah, it's, it's. In iOS, didn't Apple like one or two iOSs ago announce something where it's sort of like they chunk up the app so you only install the bits of the app for your device? So. You're referring to bytecode. Yes. So I – okay. The remedial Apple developer well, – Not just bytecode but also like if you buy a game, like it doesn't necessarily download assets. all the game assets and stuff right. like that. Right. Yeah. They, they slice it and they yeah. – I think they call it slices or whatever. And say but. if you have a 64-bit processor, it might not download the 32-bit aspect of the that stuff. Yeah, that that just works, right? I mean, it, that's an interesting. There, there also, that's an interesting way to slice up the apps too, in a way. Just a different, just a different problem they're solving. Yeah, but it has to be a native app. You're still yes, writing, right? A, oh yeah, I'm not native app. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so speaking of iOS, see, that was me trying to transition us to iOS 10.3, where they did something. Well, I guess something that most Android users would go, "You didn't already have that on iOS," and that is uh, reviews, review responses by developers. Yes. 
Yes, and and speaking of plugs, I can uh, I have a YouTube video for this that we'll put in the show notes. Nice. So, so yeah, uh, big yeah. deal. Is this does this matter anymore? I mean, this feels like we're so. This was the yeah, yeah, uh, I don't know. It just feels this like this matters quite a lot. Actually. Okay. Okay. So again, let's take the enterprise perspective because these are the people who would actually care. You have this entire customer service infrastructure at your big enterprise company. You have these metrics that you track. And because Apple did not allow you to respond or really access any information on the customers of the App Store, you have this effectively black hole of people shouting at you and you're not getting information. You can't put it into your analytics, um, into your QA tracking. It was a huge mess. And I have to be honest, I, I don't understand like why you can't even just like when somebody buys your app have their information, like their email address and name. I think you should just get that because there's a whole debate and we don't need to go. We talked about this years ago about Apple considers the the app store user their customer not yours even if they buy your app right now enterprises can and, and indies but i would probably not do it for indie apps can respond to um app store reviews that's great because most of the time people bitch about things like a minor server outage mm-hmm. or an ui update that they didn't understand you can help them out real quick but this has been on Android for a long time. So if you're curious about how it works, go to your local play.google.com and uh, check it out. Because it's Stay really not that interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, there are some best practices. You can check out my YouTube video. I go over like how to respond. But the reality is, it's this, if you've ever had to think about customer service, it's the same things, right? Don't be a jerk. Try to be nice. Yes. Uh, if the customer's irate, well, eventually you just cut off the conversation because you're you're never going to convince somebody don't, who's on a soapbox. Yeah. Don't get in a flame war. Right. I mean, I, I treat it a lot like I would treat like um, uh, websites like Glassdoor, right? If you get a, a negative thing that's so negative or obviously fake, ignore it because there's just, you, you know, you're not going to you're not going to convince disgruntled former employees who are pretending to be customers. But hey, that's the App Store, or bots that one-star you, or five-star you for fun. Boy, this sounds like YouTube comments, Reddit. It's like the same problem all over the internet. All over the You know, internet. it's funny. Like People used to complain about the Better Business Bureau being like this. I would like to show them YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> hey, our YouTube audience is awesome. It's because we don't read the comments anymore. Thumbs up for long-form con- content on YouTube. I jump in there from time to time. Everybody's nice. Everybody's nice. Hey, uh, I got just a... Uh, Right off the desk. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm saying that to the uh, to the desk person. Right off the desk, Mike. Uh, scaleyourcode.com. New interviews are posted. Scaleyourcode.com. Go there. Sign up. Get on their mailing list so that way you get not spam. No, no, friends. New announcements about interviews and goodies like that. See how experts run their platforms and get an inside look at how companies grow their infrastructure and solve difficult engineering problems. Scale Your Code is a resource that surrounds you with industry experts who share their knowledge on scalability, performance, and reliability. Those things, keep that in mind as we get into our next segment here on Coder Radio. These folks would be excellent resources so if you were signed up on their mailing list right now, you would find out that they just recently posted an interview with Nick Craver, who is the software developer and systems administrator for Stack Exchange. And they just posted this on the 19th of January. So I think that's since the last time we gathered here together. And it's a, it's a great chat. He's also – look at that. Look at that cute kid. Uh, it, it's, it's, this is such a cool service because you get to learn how others run the tools that they use in their production environment, software engineers, the people that are running the systems behind the scenes. You get to learn from their mistakes too, which is very, very valuable. And also grok a little bit of their cultures, which could be useful for some of you as well. Scaleyourcode.com. Go there, sign up, get notifications about new interviews and find out more at scaleyourcode.com. Thanks to Scale Your Code for sponsoring the Coda Radio Program. So now is the time in the show where we are going to take a moment and talk about microservices, perhaps a little bit about monolithic services versus microservices. I have put up a handy diagram on the video version for those of you that are watching the video version so you can help understand what we'll be talking about today. So, Mike, uh, did something come <laughs> up? Did this get uh, – was there a, a – a, a, what is it? That, what do they say? Like a, a spur in your craw? Is that what this So this is a spur in my craw from like months ago that I've just been waiting for the right time. All right. Tell me, tell me your pain, brother. 
So let me tell you a story. Let's take the Wayback Machine. Six months-ish. Mike was asked to do a project, a enterprise Java project. Mike was like, but I'm not really an enterprise Java guy. Sure, sure. But Mike did the project anyway. For some reason, unexplained to this day, the the vendor trying to sell the project to the the end customer, salesperson, right? So the, the salesperson designed the architecture document. This is magical to begin with. And it was very important to him that it be a microservices architecture for their Java web application. Okay. And we were building a, a proof of concept. Well, it turns out, we should probably define terms real quick here, right? Microservices. Um, Chris, can you bring up your diagram again? Absolutely. I got it always on the ready. All right. So when you think of a web app, most of the time, you probably think of something like an ASP.NET app or a Rails app. One steaming pile of poop, but one large singular pile of poop <laughs> where everything runs through this one. Let's call it the poop vector, the schwinkter, if you will. Microservices divide up the piles of poop. You can see on Chris's very helpful diagram here that one pile of poop for monolithic and roughly six for microservices. I don't know where you got these slides, but they're awesome. <laughs> the problem with six piles of poop that theoretically are supposed to be their own applications, which in this case they weren't, which is amazing. Okay, I don't know how you got crying ones, but that's great too. There, there is crying <laughs> poop on my screen right now. You gotta, you gotta watch the video of this episode. It, it, it's, it's amazing. You have some issues there. One of them would be ye old concurrency, mm. which when we say concurrency, we basically mean sadness, because no one knows how to do concurrency right. The other problem is, you know what? Don't ask, can I do this in microservices? Ask, why the hell would I try to do this as microservices? How, how is it uh, – is it – so the idea is – for me who's never had to design a system like sure. this, the idea would be <clears throat> microservices would break up the individual functionality so that way if there's a failure – components. Yeah. yeah. I replace that component. But to me, it, it also seems like it would be absolute dependency hell. So, OK. So there are a few – promises that the proponents of the microservices architecture make and to be fair to them they don't actually advocate that you always do it but there might be reasons where you so let me give you a case where i think it's totally appropriate to do a microservice architecture you have a bunch of services that need to talk to multiple systems and they are um, distinct enough and not interdependent that if a goes down it's okay because b has some other purpose in life other than talking to a Right. It's possible. Sure. Uh, an obvious example is you may have a application for your enterprise because that's apparently the buzzword of the day that, you know, manages employees and orders and scheduling. But maybe the employee service that does like new hire processing is a separate service from the, you know, payroll, whatever payroll timesheet app you're using. Right. So maybe you I don't know, you wrote your own like harvest clone. Well, that would be great because, you know, if the new hire onboarding web app goes down, well, that's its own service. So people can still fill out the timesheets and vice versa, right? If the timesheet one goes down. The reality is that that almost never happens. People build microservices as they took functionality out of one giant monolithic app and they just called it microservices and like broke them up into different services. In this case, it didn't even do that. They Instead of writing controller on the end of the file, they wrote service. So we had customer service, employee service, inventory service. <laughs> and it was one damn process. One Java process. <laughs> so we have multiple la- layers of failure here. One, yeah. not only have you not written a microservice, you've actually written a really shitty monolithic app. <laughs> Like you, you have managed to not use the framework correctly, and the framework I believe was Spring. Um, it was Spring, if I recall. So that's problematic. But you have this extra layer of 
this application, and I'm not going to go into details about it because it's your basic enterprise. You know, we are a business, we have employees, and we pay them based on commission, basically, right? So that kind of thing. It was a proof of concept to somehow win a contract to do that project. Which, like, it, 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 it's, it's scary that you needed to do that in the first place. It's also scary that you were trying to sell it on buzzwords. And if this had happened once, I would just say these guys were just, like, crazy. But I'm, I'm seeing RFPs just sort of flying around like pigeons in, in Harlem. And just, <laughs> they just, like, have microservices in them for no apparent reason. I, you know, Chris, if you wanted like a host scheduling app for the web, you know, it'd be really simple, a freaking Rails app or a PHP app, right? You don't need, you know, the Coder Radio service and the BSD Now service, although that one needs to be in its own place because it obviously is in its own jail. See what I did there? But I, I just, I have to say that I'm a little concerned and maybe we should go deeper into what a microservice actually ought to be because this is like crazy this is this is the sort of buzzword bingo that i thought was dying um i mean you remember cloud right remember cloud what do you mean cloud you mean just oh, cloud right yes. it's cloud yes okay it's cloud. yeah the How cloud are you feeling yes, sassy yes yes, yes. Yeah. i don't get it i I don't even know where they're going with this. Like the best is, can we do this Rails app as a microservice? No, because that's not what Rails is. Like there is a, a a really good argument just against using them in general, because most of the time your line of business or even your consumer applications are going to be, you know, they are just one big app. In other words, monolithic. Um, your use of you know, your use of a web development framework should be to fit the business need, not to try to hit some sort of trend and sell it like that. Sure. I know, you know, in some cases, I think it depends on the definition here. If you're building, if you're building it all yourself, it's all self-contained. I completely agree with you. If you're building an application that is supposed to coexist with either an existing application, maybe one built by a different vendor, and there's like an external OAuth authorization server right. or, a, or some sort of direct service directory or something like that, where you have to interact with something outside of the application, is that technically microservices? If you're, I mean, if you have maybe the service dashboard monitoring and OAuth externalized on different uh, systems, are, are those? Yeah, so that 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 would be yes. So you could have. Uh, that's actually a pretty sane version sure. of microservices. That's what I was right? thinking. You would have like one service that handles all authentication for this entire enterprise or organization. And it would just be like the auth service. That makes a ton of sense. It's running in its own container or server or wherever it is. Great. Um, you might have a, I don't know, customer service service, right? I mean, I know I just use that as a bad example, but... Or logging. Th- th- you could, you know, a log logging. system or a monitor a, a dashboard. A log system or- is actually a, pre- a pretty good choice, too. The, the problem is that's not the normal case. Yeah. Right? That, you know, microservices are trying to solve a problem of applications can become too big and complex to modify. Um, you may need to do... One big thing they do is taking the example of your auth service, that auth service can tie into other applications. So other applications can use that service. And, they, and the auth service doesn't need to know anything about the other applications. As long as we all have a protocol we agree on to. Uh, yeah. So that would be your case of working with multiple vendors. That's great. Again, that's just not what happens enough. No, I, I do you think some of it's um, it's like container crazy, like because you can break it all up. And because if you think about a microservices stack, what sort of different, like a traditional monolithic stack from like a stack from a server server guy standpoint would have been LAMP or something. It would have been here's a LAMP server and here's your LAMP stack and you build your right. huge app on top of this. And now it's 
Here is potentially a VPS that could be running core OS that could have 15, 20 containers, maybe 100 containers on it, being managed by a front-end orchestration management software. So the problem is you've already screwed up one of the main advantages of being a microservice architecture. If you're just going to shove a bunch of containers on one VPS, then you're losing the advantage of being able to scale horizontally. And have, you know, let's say your off service is used by every application in the country, in the country, in the company. Well, that one maybe needs to be on its own VPN or, or v, I'm sorry, VPS or box or something and needs some beefy uh, memory requirements. But you know where you're, I'm just making stuff up. I'm using employee management. You're like sick leave or maternity leave service probably gets a lot less use, right? Yeah. So that, that can be on a, on a Docker container or on one server. With I just, other things. I do wonder if, if the container, if the possibility of containerization made this, I mean, I, that feels like we're really where, when this caught, caught fire, microservices caught fire. And, and they are certainly commonly used together, but I use containerization all the time in monolithic apps. I, I, in fact, I don't do any deployments for Rails without Docker anymore. So, oh, damn, yeah, it's, really? No, I, I thought we talked about that a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah I guess it, all, it just doesn't sink in. It doesn't sink in, you know? It feels That's like... That's why I bitch them out every time they release a new feature instead of, yeah. like, fixing basic compatibility. Yeah, yeah. Oof, sorry, I get, I get a little heated. Oof. That's uh, it's good though. It's good. It's good. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, this is a pretty deep topic, and we should go back into it. But one of the primary advantages that I I don't feel I hit hard enough was the reason. And, and actually, someone just beat me to it in the chat. The enemy. The reason people shied away from microservice, or maybe not the reason, but in the past, servers were expensive, right? Let's just yep. So you want to spin up one VPS, throw on a throw on an app, and be done. Yeah. Now, servers are super cheap, so it does allow you. Less so than containerization, though containerization makes the deployment process easier. It does allow you to do this and not sort of go crazy and end up, you know, killing your your budget. But you you if you're going to do it, and if your reason is scalability or recoverability or durability or reliability or anything that ends in ability. <laughs> you can't just shove a bunch of containers on one VPS, call it a microservice because you you. You just traded like the, one of the primary benefits of horizontal scaling. And also you, you need to go back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the segment and evaluate the actual problem your application is supposed to solve and decide, is this one application that should just be a monolithic app? Or, you know what, is this service valuable enough that if I write it as its own service, other future applications or existing applications can you know communicate to it over a REST protocol or some other protocol and you know, we, we scale that way and we have value that way. Hmm. Rant over. I love it, Mr. Dominic. That's uh, well put. I'm glad we finally got around to discussing that. If people have input they'd like to add or contribute, they can go over to coderadio.reddit.com. You can also go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Coder Radio from the dropdown. So official. Mr. Dominic, where can people follow you throughout the week? Uh, go to buccaneer.io. <laughs> I like how I surprise you with the question every week. <laughs> every time. You get me every time. Like, you, it seems, damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I still love you anyways, boo. You can follow me. I'm at Chris LAS. Follow the network at Jupiter Signal, And maybe even catch a few moments from behind the scene in my vlog. What? Over at YouTube.com slash Chris Fisher. Yeah, it's real. It's happening. In fact, I'm recording the vlog right now. See you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>